Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frizz Breeze with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Randy? I'm doing fabulous. Uh, I'm actually going to get to go jam with the beast today. We have uh, kind of a cloudy, rainy day here in Seattle, so we're going to go indoors and uh, have a session. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you got any jamming on the docket today? Uh, sadly, no. Today is a work day for me. It's terrible. Oh, I'm that's so jealous. Awful. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, with the beginning of the new year, uh, I guess we're actually past the first four months, but we're starting to get into jam season again. And I wanted to know, uh, is there anything in particular that you want to work on for this year in your jam skills? Well, that's an interesting question because last time we talked about this, I was working on uh, something specific, and that was leg rolls. I had a lot of fun looking at all the options with what you could do with leg rolls, but I'm not really working on anything specific. But one thing that I, I have been playing with is uh, tempo and sort of the musicality and the relationship that I'm having with the disc. And what I mean by that is, you know, doing something really fast and then trying something really slow and like, you know, maybe just have the disc hanging on a rim delay and just hold it there and just pause and then move back into something more fluid and then something fast and just playing with all those layers in between the fast and the slow and really getting into that musicality of the relationship with the disc. I'm finding that to be an interesting place to go. That's really fascinating because when I ask the question and the way I think about it is, what trick am I working on? Am I working on double spins? Am I working on invert? Am I working on something like just a specific Frisbee trick? But I don't usually think about the way that I'm doing the moves, the way that you think about it. That's just so fascinating. And, and I think it's pretty cool to think, okay, can I do this same move, but can I do it slower? And then speed up really fast. And you know, part of like part of your your whole thing is that surprise, that reveal, that uh, be interesting to watch, even if I'm not doing anything super technical. And that's I think that's where you get it from because you think of things in a completely different, like a whole this whole other perspective of it. That I don't know, it's not it's not in my natural way of thinking. It's pretty cool. Well, you should give it a try. Try something about just play with tempo and that idea of. Just go ahead and hold the rim for like, say, five seconds and just kind of take that position and then pull it back really fast and go off. And then, you know, you can play around with that. Give it a try. I'd be curious to uh, hear your thoughts after you consciously make that decision uh, and see if you're getting an experience that is worthwhile to you. Yeah, yeah, I will do that. I don't know. Yeah, I've always tried to figure out because when I watch you play, it's just it just draws me in. It's really interesting. And I don't always get that from everybody. And I don't feel like I get that when I watch myself play on video. So I've always wondered, how do I make that happen? And maybe this is a tiny glimpse into how you do it. I don't know. I don't know what that is. But uh, I do know that I try to think about having a relationship with the disc and not so much about I'm 
telling the disc what to do. It's more about what the disc is telling me what to do and kind of a combination of me telling it what to do and it telling me what to do. And so that's that relationship. And it isn't just one way of like, I'm just going to beat this disc into submission to do what I want it to do. I want to have it kind of be a give and take there. Maybe that's what that tempo thing is that I'm playing with is trying to find those layers and, and play with the, the relationship of what the actual moment is and go from there. That's interesting. Cause when I was a new player, I had the same sort of realization that I couldn't force the disc to do what I wanted. I had to see what the options were and then pick one basically. So listen to it and follow it along. But maybe um, you're finding different options than what I found. Like, so like one of the things that I'm always looking for is how can I adjust my position to the disc to get a skid out of this? Because skids are so important to me. You're thinking, well, how can I use this to change my tempo? How can I use this to change the, I don't know, the emotion that comes out of what I'm doing? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Well, really it's more of just, it's the musicality of the whole thing. And it is, I think maybe I enjoy approaching it more from a dance perspective and not so much like, oh, I don't want to do technical things with the disc. It's just more of, I want it to be a fluid movement and a back and forth. And so not so much thinking about, oh, I want to position myself so I can get this skid. And it's more of like, well, if the skid isn't there, then don't take it and do whatever option is. And if the skid's there, then take it. You know, if you're trying to explain to somebody, like, just let the disc tell you what to do. That seems really like, well, what does that mean? And it's kind of hard to describe. uh, And it's more of a feel. And I think it's something that you start to get a better understanding for the longer you play. And that's why I think maybe playing with tempo uh, might be something of value to folks out there to see if they can get that idea of what that means. So let me ask you this question. So you, one of your examples was let the discs hang on the rim for a little while, not moving or moving really slowly, and then speed it back up. So how do you know when it's the right time to go into the slow tempo to let the disc hang on the rim? Well, that's a combination of things. So it's a, in my head, it just seems like, oh, that's the appropriate thing to do. But a lot of times it'll be the music that I'm playing too. And I would say that's probably the big driver is the music. Yeah, I guess it's really just exploring that, the musicality. That makes sense. So it's not just the disc telling you what to do, it's the music. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, I've gotten to the point where really music is a big part of going and jamming. Having music there and having it be a partner can be really magical. And I, I know you know what I'm talking about oh, yeah. when you let the music sort of drive the decision-making and the tempo. Yeah, a lot of it is tempo, definitely. Some of it's move choice, too. You go for a, an easier move or a move that you know has a certain a flow, like yeah, I can time this particular move to the beat or to the music cue that's coming up. Well, I think another thing that's really fun to play with, too, is not just tempo, but uh, body position. So, you know, get on one knee and just see what happens. Like, where are you forced to do the rim on just one knee or lay down on the ground or stand on one leg? So playing with tempo and body position, there can be all sorts of really fun things that will happen that you don't normally expect because you've just put yourself in this shape and just go where it goes. 
you know, one of the things that I love when we're jamming together, you get on the ground and I just lay down next to you. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and I put one leg up or I reach over. Right. And yeah. sometimes some amazing stuff has happened. Yeah. Well, that's that whole sculpting thing. And that's another whole another layer of, you know, so there's the tempo and the body positions and then there's sculpting that you can sculpt around other people's bodies. Oh, yeah. That's just a whole nother thing. Well, okay. Good conversation. So with that, <laughs> kind of gone off into left field, but let's bring us back to reality now. So what are we actually here to talk about? Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Kate Dow and uh, begin by asking her, who are some of her inspirational players? So Kate, who are some of your inspirations, uh, both male and female? Well, I'm going to try and go back to Venice and pre, you know, New York people moving out there. I think a lot of just the locals were inspirational because of their joy of playing. We were like a little family and that was so loving and supportive and fun. And um, it's, it's like nobody was doing it because they felt they should. Everyone was doing it because they loved it. And that just was so powerful and beautiful for me. So, you know, Brian Roberts, you know, Jeffrey, Remember it, Pearl, you know, all, everybody down there inspired the hell out of me. Um, you know, when Joey first came, he was kind of a jerk, um, really, honestly. He and Jane and Richie, you know, they all came in very kind of un, unaccessible and with a lot of attitude. So originally I was just like, who are these guys? You know, I felt that they thought a lot higher of themselves than was really helpful for just coming and being a part of the family. It wasn't till many years later that uh, up, up in Santa Barbara that I felt uh, a little more connected because of course I ended up um, partnering up with, with Chipper. That's a whole story to itself. And, uh, but you know, so there was sort of the love of being connected with Chipper and Joey and Richie and Crazy John, you know, and and also the kind of, downside of being Chip's girlfriend, because then, you know, it was always the dudes took over the the scene. But in terms of jamming, I think as I could come to appreciate Joey beyond his, you know, because he softened a lot in Santa Barbara, he was a lot more accessible. And I felt like that really helped me and inspired my game, of course, with the wind game. And up there, you, you could we were really focused a lot on that, like learning to really work with the wind and not over control the disc, but doing subtle, subtle corrections and body rolls and kicks. And, you know, I mean, of course, Brian Roberts was the original amazing person who could kick the disc like and and just keep running with it he was he was actually quite amazing with that so um and of course you know eventually i became to understand that the center game was really important and so you know richie was quite adept at doing the spinning taps and um pulls and against the spin stuff um richie smiths i'm talking about and Female players, you know, I, I didn't get to see Laura a lot. So I didn't get to really be inspired as much because I just didn't get to be influenced by her. And as much as I appreciated Jane's strength in the game, 
again, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't totally value it because her, her kind of attitude kind of got in the way of me feeling like I could totally appreciate it. But I would say in general, it was more the guys that were, I was looking to for that next level, just because that was the kind of style of my game was more masculine and in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, upping the difficulty, upping the, the, uh, the, um, God, I've forgotten all the terminology <laughs> when, when one movement goes right into the next. Yeah. The consecutivity. The consecutivity. Yeah. Like that was a huge thing that I learned from Joey, seeing that that became like a really high value in, in Venice. So I really worked that in, and that became a big part of what became like, this is how you do it. And so when I, I just never gave myself a lot of room for not being able to have things be consecutive or to, you know, even draw a, a spinning combination out by just kind of swinging the disc. It was like, no, you had to do it center. So it, I kind of made it harder for myself because I took on these sort of rigid ideas of this is this is good playing and this isn't. And being a little bit stuck in that in, in, in a way that I think was not so helpful for me, you know, um, Stacy, I think became like the queen of being able to find this balance where she could do some consecutive things and, and also do some, you know, just kind of, um, transitions that made her play very beautiful. And I was actually envious of it because she could have these sort of set combinations that were beautiful and I, my brain just didn't work that way. I was so in the moment that all I could do was what came out of my body. I couldn't go, okay, remember that like you do this to this and then you do this to this. It's like, I just didn't think that way. And so it made it kind of difficult. It was all yeah, spontaneous. Yeah. I thought of three different questions throughout that whole thing. But uh, so, <laughs> so let's start with the, the first one that I thought of. So um, I want to take you back to the Venice Green again. Uh, and you were talking about the family aspect of the Venice Green and how much you just loved the sport. So at some point, you transitioned from just loving playing with your family and being a part of the scene into wanting to be a competitive player. So how did that transition work for you? Well, it felt like that's what was expected. Okay. Yeah. Within the family, even like that's where I went to the Rose Bowl. Like this is what you do if you're going to play get good at it and then go compete. So I think I did that and I achieved that in 1981. And then I backed off and went back to a way to play it and not feel overly run by it. But I, I would get, I would, it was a kind of a, a struggle. I would say it was like a competing struggle in me where I was like, I just want to jam and have fun. And then that other part of me that was like, yeah, but you need to get out there and, push yourself to go perform and do it well. Like I, I felt like it was like a self mastery thing, which is what I call my work now, like learn to get out there and do your best. And that really was about me. It wasn't about beating other people. It was always about me. And I remember playing, I want to say it was like either Santa Cruz or Oak Grove, something weird. And I was with Connie and we went out and I was just not on my game. Like I was just having a rough day and my inner critic like was insane going crazy. I was so 
getting upset that when we finished, I just sort of stormed off the field. I was such a poor loser for myself because I was beating myself up so bad. And I think we ended up winning just because of our difficulty points. But I was like, no, I played like shit. You know, I was just like super not in control of my own you know, ability to keep it together. And that's an example of how I used, you know, going to tournaments. At that point, it was more about, can you go and do the best you can, enjoy it, and keep your shit together, Kate? Well, it's interesting you talk about that, that transition from the family to the competitive part, and, you know, mastery of the of the skills, but you were around all the people who were really driving where the vision was going. And so that's easy to kind of get swept up in that vortex. You know, it's like Donnie and Joey were all about pushing that consecutivity. And you're like, yeah, I see that. And I want to, you know, it's like mastering the guitar or whatever. You want right. to go where the masters are going because there's something very attractive about it's that. True. But also, also it can be very like, you don't even realize how attractive it is and it's destroying you at the same time. Right. Like your but, ego gets pulled into it. You know, I mean, Donnie was amazing, but his ego was out of this freaking world. And he couldn't just be happy that he was good at it. He had to be kind of better than everyone in a way. And Joey too. Joey had that sure. attitude for a long time. And yeah. and I think I get I got pulled into it like, oh, I'm I'm good and I can jam with Joey. Like so I even could get caught pulled into that, like I'm special because I'm on the inner group. And I that's an issue theme throughout my life of being able to be enough and know who I am as myself and not feel like, oh, if I'm if I'm with the the best people, then then I'm good enough. Um, but I certainly it certainly was part of the challenge living sure. in Santa Barbara. Right. Because. Yeah. I was supposed to go after the Rose Bowl with Richie Bartle to us to New Zealand to go play a demo for Carlsberg beer. That was going to be my like thing I got to go do. And it totally fell apart. I had deferred school to, you know, college and everything. And I was so disappointed. And then years later when Chip and Joey and Crazy John were doing the whole Bud Light tours and just getting like having the whole package, I was like, but you don't really want that. Like you think you want it because it looks so this, but it's not really you, you know? So it's like that struggle. So one thing that I liked about what you said, Kate, was uh, that you were able to continue to go to events, but then just jam on the sideline and not quite take it so seriously. Uh, It's nice to know that you can still continue to pursue your self-mastery and your just basically your freestyle improvement without having to have the competition be what drives you. I know. And it made people crazy. They just didn't get it. Like I would show up at, um, I always think of the tournament, uh, La Mirada, like it's in like Irvine or something. And I'd show up there and that was a big tournament because it was an overall tournament. And, um, when sometimes when I was competing, but I wasn't really caring about whether or not I was winning, but I would also decide to go play other sports, like, uh, other disc sports. Like I'd show up for distance, kind of irritate people because I was naturally athletic and I could get up there and they're like, who's this? She's a freestyler. And I just chuck that puppy so hard. And they were like, Oh my God, 
you know, or I could jump into the ultimate, like with Santa Barbara condors, they'd be like, Hey, Kate, can you come? And I'd be the person who pulled in the front and ran to the bottom and I could read the disc really well. So I could catch it in in the end, you know, the outfield, whatever that is the end. And I could just pick that up. And I loved that part because that allowed me to not over-focus on I'm, you know, I have to somehow defend my championship. I was like, I don't care. I just want to enjoy it and do different things. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's why I, I could go to tournaments and not, and not compete is because I was looking just that's, you know, I was looking for the flow for that connection. I didn't need the, Oh, you were first or you were second. I didn't need that part for a long time. And the, and the only reason I came back and decided to, to do it before um, in 91 was because I was moving and I was leaving San Diego, which had then become the next Mecca. I was like, let's do this, you know? And I was, a lot of things in my life were starting to change. And so that was sort of my final hurrah, like, let's go do it and have a blast. So Kate, you said something earlier about um, doing your moves in the moment where you just do what your body does versus having a pre-planned set of moves that you're going to do or pre a preset series. Um, so was your pro- approach to the game really just spontaneous and do what comes? Yeah, it really was uh, always that way. And I literally, I would try, I would work at trying to have a few things that I could at least fall back on if I was just spaced out. But there's something about freestyle for me where I I would just show up and everything was just in the energy of the moment. So how the disc was coming at me and how I was coming to it. I, I couldn't think at the same time that I was playing. It was just how that was for me, which was, you know, pros and cons on that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. for a new player, do you think that's a good way to approach the sport? Or do you think um, maybe a little bit of both? What do you think for new players? I mean, I think initially you really are learning a level of focus and thinking because you have to, to in order to learn the delay and the basics. But I think my particular style was once I had those basics that I needed to let go of the thinking just to be in the flow. When I, when I would get stuck in the thinking, um, I would get stuck in my head and it was just, it wasn't the same experience. It wasn't the same flow and beauty, but everyone's different, right? So some people need to have that structure in place and that helps them feel more able to flow. So I, I don't, I think it's just a personal a personal approach. Yeah, I think also you have to have some kind of foundation before you can even get to that place of letting go. So you have to have the fundamentals in place. You know, it's just like any, you know, like playing the guitar, you got to have, you know, the chords and scales and stuff before you can just get into a jam. Right. Go off with somebody. So, uh, and I, I know it took me a long time to get to that place, but there is that switch that gets flipped and you like go, oh, I've got enough fundamentals that I can just kind of react. And that is where the magic happens. And you know that too, Jake, you, right. you know, you and I have been in hundreds of those jams, but it's hard to explain to somebody who's new to say, put in all these hours. Trust me, there's some really fun, cool stuff that you're going to get to, but you got to put in the time. Mm-hmm. You got to get that base fundamental. And when you do, it's awesome. Trust me. But then they go, what do you mean? It takes me five years to do that. I don't have five <laughs> years to get there. 
I know. And, and it, everyone's different, right? I mean, some people, it really, you know, it's a struggle to learn those basics. But, um, you know, what I was just reminiscing on when you were saying that is, um, you know, the Coloradicals, when they came in and started doing these flowing, moving co-ops with each other, they introduced this whole new movement before it was more so like two people playing and they go back and forth and they do a little combination, you know, and they go back and the whole flow of more of the three person co-op and then the air game that started to develop in Santa Barbara where, you know, you were then passing it very quickly back and forth and everyone's sort of running down the field and just spontaneously playing together was such an amazing uh, development of of energy and flow that hadn't been happening. And that really was an amazing experience. And And I think what was difficult when I go back and look at that is that, you know, you wanted to play that with people who were able and already to do that because you got this this energy flow thing happening like like you would with music, like you're saying, Randy, like, you know, you'd get that jam going. Um, and I think that that was hard because you also wanted to help support people to learn how to do that. Right. And so uh, I, I can imagine that the, in some ways I was probably a little bit snotty at times like I'm just going to play with you know Joey or Chip or you know and not be as open to playing with other people who didn't quite have that flow yet and I would feel bad but I'd also be like I only have like 40 minutes to jam I want to do the flow thing you know and so I think that that's kind of I feel sad about it but I also know that that's kind of the nature of playing in any sport and wanting to be with people you're kind of matched at because you can get that flow. But I look back and I think people, some people probably felt pretty left out. Yeah. That's still prevalent today. I mean, you still have those players that, and and I shine the light on myself that you get drawn to the folks who can hang at a certain level. Uh, and it probably does exclude maybe folks who don't have as many skills. What do you think about that, Jake? Yeah. Well, uh, I've done the exact same thing. Plenty of times I've seen people off to the side who are maybe interested, but I'm in the jam and I'm having such a good time. I don't want to stop. It's a hard thing. Yeah. It almost feels like I'm, you know, being older and wiser now, I can look back and think, gosh, I wish that I could have been able to do a bit of both more. Like I know I did at times play with people that weren't necessarily my, you know, top choice, but like that's part of it, right? Is you hold space for other people to learn. And I feel like we could all probably have done that a little better <laughs> looking back. And today we can and today. Do better. Yeah. 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 Today actually, as, as we all get a little bit older, maybe now's the chance for us to spend more time yeah. teaching the younger generation. Um, but Stork had an interesting observation about uh, in a community, eventually the level gets so high that the new players just can't reach it anymore. It looks unattainable. And so then they stop. They basically the new players stop entering the sport because the level is just unattainable. Totally agree with you. I I I I felt that too. I felt like there was people that I knew were were beginning and they were just like, how the you know, seeing people spinning and doing, you know, just like, what? How am I gonna get there? Um, and I I feel like 
what do we do about that as a sport where you want to encourage people, you know, you'd, you'd almost have to create like training days, like where today we are going to make it just about holding space for new people to learn the next stuff. It's like we created this monster that <laughs> people can't get to easily. And they, you know, they get drawn to other activities. Like, you know, they can get involved in soccer or whatever athletic thing pretty golf. quickly. Ultimate and golf. Yeah, ultimate and golf are huge. And they're right. huge. Right. You know, and it's really easy to get started in them. It really does come down to dedicating yourself to the folks on the sideline and, you know, really nurturing them along. But, you know, it's hard when it's a small niche sport and you have limited time. Yes, it is a conundrum about how do we get people engaged with what we're doing. Like I say, it feels like we've created this monster and I don't know how to get new people to be able to cross that chasm, that gap of like, here, come play for five years and you'll get to understand this. So uh, I just don't know what the answer is of, you know, I've tried so many times to reach out to folks, but you got to have folks willing to come and play as well. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm reflecting back on my own experience as a new jammer and, and what the scene was like for me. So I guess the chasm didn't look quite as big when I started because the the community where I started, the the top players were not like top players in the world. They were really good players and they had skills, but they weren't so intimidating that it looked impossible. And then there were a bunch of us who were just total beginners. And so we couldn't do anything that those top players were doing, but we could play with each other and not feel embarrassed and like learn from each other and train each other. So Mike, the guy who was one of the top players in our small community, every so often he would take us to the big jams in San Francisco and Sacramento. And then we'd see the top players. We'd see Tommy and Steve Hubbard. And, and it was just so inspirational. And then we see what the chasm really was, but we were never like faced with it on a daily basis. So uh, I think if I was, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to cross it. I think it would have been too intimidating. So maybe it's something about the community and just having levels of players that start at the beginning and go all the way to the top. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that is the the key. You've got to have those different skill levels so that folks can see, oh, these are the stepping stones. And right now folks are kind of seeing the top level. So I guess the key is you got to build the community. Well, then, then you're at that conundrum yeah, again. Good chicken like, and egg. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is like the chicken and the egg. Like, how do you how do you build the community to get those layers when you already have the chicken or is it the egg? I don't know, right? I don't know, yeah. Which one came first? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's the hurdle that we haven't quite figured out how to get over, and we're in constant search of it. Uh, so with that, I just want to let folks know that we will be doing some live streaming here pretty soon. I'm going to be heading to Virginia States, and so I will live stream that event. Um, just a warning that Virginia States internet is not so good, so the live stream may be a little bit bumpy. If it is, I will be recording it locally so you can watch it on replay and it won't be bumpy. And then in May, I'm going to Jammers, so I'll be live streaming that as well. And with that, I'll talk to you next time, Randy. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, Check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.